1986, there were more violent crimes in the U.S. than had ever been recorded in a calendar year. The murder rates in Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C., and a bunch more places all spiked by double digits. But in the papers and on the TV news, it was Detroit that got branded the worst of the worst. There are some who call Detroit the murder capital of the nation. This summer has been especially violent, with more than 500 shootings reported in two months. You better look behind your back, because you don't know when somebody's going to jump you or try to shoot you or kill you or anything. Detroit had 648 homicides in 1986, the highest per capita murder rate of any major American city. It seemed like every time you turn around, someone was getting killed. That's Fred Bell. As a patrol officer on Detroit's northwest side, he saw deep poverty and the destruction wrought by heroin and crack cocaine. They had teenagers, uh, young kids, uh, 14 and below, uh, selling drugs. If they can't go home to a meal, they're going to do what they have to do. If you've never lived it, it's sort of hard to understand it. People getting beat up, home invasions, uh, and the murders. Georgella Muirhead was Detroit's director of public information. It was her job to build up the city when so many others were tearing it down. She thought the press sensationalized violence in Detroit and pathologized its majority Black residents. But she didn't believe the crime wave was a media myth. It was impossible to live in Detroit and not be touched by it. And I really felt violated when I came out of my house one day, ready to go to work, and my car that was sitting in my driveway was sitting on on cedar blocks. Cedar blocks that they had taken from my backyard. (laughs) And so all of my tires were gone. Uh, People had those kind of experiences all the time. Plenty of Detroiters refused to accept the status quo. They did whatever they could to make the city safe and get drugs out of their neighborhoods. There was even a law enforcement phone bank at 313-NO-CRACK. No crack hotline, can I help you? 3,000 calls have come in since July. Can you give me a description of the house, sir? But the truth was, all those efforts felt like trying to empty the Detroit River with a teaspoon. So it was easy to feel stuck. Doing nothing wasn't any kind of solution. But fixing Detroit's problems felt totally impossible. It just seemed so senseless, and it just seemed that there was nothing you could do to even protest against it. You can talk until you blew in the face. I mean, it was a lost cause. But then, all of a sudden, the conversation in Detroit shifted. The man who changed it was one of the city's biggest celebrities. Isaiah will scoop and he scores. Boy, he makes it look so easy. Stop me going right, I'll go left. Stop me from going over, I'll go under. Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas was one of the world's greatest basketball players. A brilliant point guard with a famous smile. When he talked, people listened. And in the summer of 86, he had a message for Detroit. I ask on this day that we all chill and make it a crime-free city, a day where we can all feel safe. Crime's root causes were tough to grapple with, but the solution Isaiah was proposing? That was simple. September 27th is no crime day. I'm asking the dope man on this day, don't sell dope. I'm asking you who steals for a living on this day, don't steal. I'm asking you who kills for a living on this day, let him live. It was a crazy idea. A famous athlete asking an entire city to just stop committing crimes for one day. On September 27, 1986, Detroit would find out if it worked. This is One Year, a series about the people and struggles that changed America, one year at a time. I'm Josh Levine. In our third season, we're going to rewind all the way back to 1986. There has been an accident at the Chernobyl Atomic Power Station. It gets through Buckner, and the Mets win it! Just say no to drugs. It was an era of swaggering excess, on Wall Street and in cineplexes. I feel the need, the need for speed. 
It was also a time of hardship and deprivation in cities all over the U.S. Millions linked hands to raise money for America's hungry and homeless. This season, you'll get new perspectives on the moments and scandals that defined 1986, like the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger and the opening of Al Capone's vault. You'll also hear forgotten stories about a school hostage situation in Wyoming that took a miraculous turn and the unlikely American who became a Soviet propaganda star. But first, would Isaiah Thomas's vision of a crime-free world set Detroit on a new path? Or was it a recipe for failure? No crime day. We're not going to get out there and do anything stupid. We're, hey, we're going to be good, Detroit. When you are branded as the murder capital of the world, you have to really be bold. It's a goal, it's an idea, it's a thought, it's a dream. And if you people give it a chance, it, it may work. This is One Year, 1986. No Crime Day. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do you do the Detroit basketball thing on demand? Could we get one? Detroit basketball. Amazing. <laughs> that made my week. John Mason has been a Detroit institution for almost 40 years, a morning radio host and the Pistons PA announcer. Piston fans up on your feet. Time to meet and greet the ballers representing the Detroit Pistons. In all those years, there's never been a better player than number 11, Isaiah Thomas. His basketball game was elite. And wherever he went in whatever game he played, he just carried the whole city with him at all times. Inbound pass to Lampier on top by Isaiah. Three-pointer. How old were you when you could tell that you had a gift for basketball? I don't know what other people were thinking. I just know I had no idea my basketball playing ability was special. Isaiah Thomas was born on the west side of Chicago in 1961, the youngest of nine children. Everything felt stable until his father got laid off and left home. Isaiah's mother, Mary Thomas, worked hard to support her family. But even so, there was never enough food to go around. And when you are hungry, you cannot think clearly. Those who have been hungry understand instantly what I'm saying. Isaiah's hunger drove him to steal other kids' lunches and to dine and dash at pizza parlors. Three of his brothers fared much worse, getting addicted to heroin and cocaine and ending up in jail. As a kid, Isaiah spent his days tagging along with his older siblings. That's how he became an athlete. Basketball is just, you know, the every day recreation in the neighborhood. There was no babysitters or anything like that. So everywhere they went, I had to go. Isaiah was a hoops prodigy. He developed a halftime stunt routine when he was still in kindergarten. By the fourth grade, he was starring on his school's eighth grade team. But on the west side of Chicago, sports weren't always a refuge, even for an elementary schooler. We were playing on a Gladys play lot and one of the kids just pulled up and they started shooting. Isaiah saw a man drop to the ground with blood gushing out of his chest. I remember running and jumping 
and hiding under a car until it was safe to come out. Isaiah's talent eventually earned him a ticket out of the neighborhood, first to a prep school in the suburbs, and then to Indiana University. As a sophomore, he led the Hoosiers to the 1981 NCAA title. Isaiah Thomas, when it comes down, Indiana will be champion. A few months later, the pride of Chicago got drafted by the Detroit Pistons. His first NBA contract paid him $400,000 a year, enough to buy his mother a house. But at 20 years old, he didn't feel like a grown-up. Living in another city full-time scared me to death. I mean, I didn't know anything about living on your own. So I was nervous. I was afraid. How did you kind of get to know Detroit? I was so fortunate to have my mom. She was just fearless. (laughs) Somehow uh, she called the mayor's office and, you know, was like, take care of my baby. (laughs) The mayor was Coleman Young, and he was happy to help. Detroit is a, a very generous city, a city where people are concerned with each other. That's Young in a 1985 interview. He was one of America's first prominent black mayors and a fierce advocate for his hometown. The thing that's really special about the city is the warmth of its people, but it's not a warmth of weakness, it's a warmth of strength. And the strength at the same time to persevere in the face of uh, incredible hardship. When Isaiah came to Detroit, that hardship was everywhere. By the 1980s, the city was a shell of its former self. In the 1950s, my goodness, we were the fifth largest uh, city in the country. Herb Boyd is the author of Black Detroit, A People's History of Self-Determination. When we got out of high school, I mean, you could get a job at Ford, get a job at Chrysler. But then when you get into the 1960s, it's a whole different character. And the companies begin to leave the city. White flight and corporate disinvestment were already well underway when Detroit exploded in civil unrest. In a hundred places, Detroit is afire. And as you walk through the area, people shout from their homes, watch out for the snipers. This is going to happen all over America. It's going to be a hot world, not a hot summer. Segregation, joblessness, and police brutality all helped instigate the 1967 riot. In its aftermath, everything got worse. Hundreds of thousands of white residents fled the city, leaving black Detroiters increasingly isolated in low-income neighborhoods. How do you pay the rent? How do you buy groceries? You were trying to make do. That's why you had then a proliferation of drug dealing going on in the city. Coleman Young campaigned against racist policing, but also sent a strong message about law and order. To all dope pushers, to all rip-off artists, to all mothers, it's time to leave Detroit. It ain't my road. The mayor's rhetoric didn't do much to stamp out crime. And by 1986, a city that was already teetering found itself facing a new American epidemic. This is the typical tiny bottle for the new illegal drug of choice in America, crack. We've learned where people have gone to elementary school kids and offered them $1,500 to run a crack house for a week. And drugs are also behind a new and growing crime problem in Detroit, where children are murdering children. This youth drew a gun on someone who asked him to give up his shoes. Detroit often got singled out, but the devastation of crack cocaine wasn't isolated to any one city. It was spreading all over the U.S. And it wasn't just the violence of the drug trade that was destroying young lives. The Maryland Medical Examiner has now issued his report on the death of the college basketball star Len Bias. It confirms the worst suspicions. He died of heart failure because he used cocaine. Len Bias had been touted as the next Michael Jordan. He was powerful, graceful, and incredibly skilled. His death in June 1986 shocked the nation. At the time of his overdose, Bias had just been drafted number two overall by the Boston Celtics. That's the same slot where Isaiah Thomas had been selected five years earlier. Isaiah had seized that opportunity, making five straight NBA All-Star games 
and transforming the Pistons into contenders. Pistons will go to Isaiah Thomas. Here he is. Three-point try, and Isaiah Thomas hits for three. What an unbelievable shot that was. Now, at 25 years old, Isaiah was hungry to accomplish something big off the court. In the summer of 1986, he was recovering from thumb surgery, and he had a lot of time to think about what he'd witnessed as a child and what he was seeing on the news. Drugs being dumped into all communities. As a community of folk, this was put here to destroy us. And recognizing who I have become in Detroit and understanding the platform that I had, it was my responsibility and obligation to try to help uplift our community. Isaiah needed a big idea, a way to convert that obligation into action. That July, it came to him. A few years earlier, in his hometown of Chicago, a black hair care tycoon had launched what he called a black-on-black love campaign. Part of that was a plea to stop the violence for a 24-hour period, a no-crime day. The concept hadn't really taken off in Chicago. But Isaiah thought there was something there worth salvaging. That if it was done right, a day without crime could become a reality. What I wanted to do in Detroit was a little different because I wanted to bring the political force to the table. In 1986, he was no longer a fearful rookie. Now, when he wanted an audience with Mayor Coleman Young, his mom didn't make the call. And to his credit, he said, let's do it. Isaiah spent a lot of time on this, almost full time, for six weeks. When you consider uh, the salary that he makes, uh, six weeks of Isaiah's time is a chunk of change. (laughs) On September 4th, 1986, Mayor Young called a news conference to share Isaiah's plans with the world. So I'm going to let Isaiah talk to you about uh, this whole uh, no-crime-day development. Isaiah? Thank all of you for coming. You may ask, what is a no-crime-day? What do I hope to achieve? Uh, Basically, the goal is to have Detroit free of all crime on that day and every other day. This is a community problem, and we all have to solve it. To pull it off, Isaiah was going to need a lot of help. And so my job was to do that, take their idea and come up with a plan that would, uh, that would work for the city of Detroit and would meet their objectives. As Detroit's director of public information, Georgella Muirhead managed a staff of 33. She became the city's point person for No Crime Day. That meant working very closely with Isaiah Thomas. Actually, we became friends, and it was his personality. He was just so easy to get along with. And that was one of the reasons the community felt that he had their back. They believed he was genuine. Isaiah's big event was set for September 27th. No Crime Day would start with a march and culminate in a big rally downtown. He would also ask Detroiters to turn on their porch lights that night as a symbol of citywide solidarity. Now, they just needed to get the word out. To drum up publicity, Isaiah called on the most beloved parents of 1986. Isaiah Thomas has established September 27th as no crime day. Now, what does that mean? It means he cares enough about Detroit to ask for one day of peace. One day that the bad people don't act bad and good people get involved in crime prevention. He didn't just get Felicia Rashad and Bill Cosby to record No Crime Day PSAs. He also enlisted his good friend, Magic Johnson. Isaiah told me he wanted a no crime day. I said, what? Then he looked at me. So I said, what do you want me to do? So here I am. September 27th is no crime day. So it was a big thing to to kind of instill in the kids. No shooting, no killing, no robbing. There was supposed to be a day of calm in the city. Nine-year-old Alto Edwards heard about No Crime Day at an elementary school assembly. A group of Detroit police officers came and brought along musical instruments. 
So they had all of us little guys in there sitting cross-legged, watching them perform. I remember them playing You Dropped the Bomb on Me. So, (laughs) (laughs) Did you know who Isaiah Thomas was? Yes, everybody knew who Isaiah Thomas was. I remember knowing that he was short. And for me, anybody that was short (laughs) was probably the best person in the world. So, like, I remember in gym class going, I'm just going to be Isaiah Thomas today. (laughs) I'm going to make this work. As September 27th drew closer, Isaiah tried to reach as many young people as he could. So we would just be driving through a neighborhood. Isaiah might see some kids playing basketball. He would hop out the car and start this conversation. Isaiah told those kids that they needed to straighten up on No Crime Day. He said that important people would be paying attention, that if everyone behaved themselves, corporate America might finally see the city's potential. And that's what he wanted to break through and use his celebrity to do. It's an opportunity for everyone. You just don't have to choose uh, a life of crime. Isaiah didn't just give that speech in friendly venues. A couple of weeks before No Crime Day, a reporter followed him to the intersection of Mac and Gray. When he got out of his car, a drug dealer told him, this is a bad corner, man. You shouldn't be here. But Isaiah stayed. There was no fear of interacting with any of these individuals because that's where I come from. I felt that I was received by everyone as a family relative. I don't remember any negativity uh, from any individual. I think there were some kids who were just kind of cynical that it would work, just feeling kind of beaten down, you know? Yeah, and I understand that. It's a harshness that sometimes comes with it that no one or nobody cares about me. Yeah, I I see you here today, but, you know, ain't nobody going to listen to you. Those doubts from kids around Detroit didn't bother Isaiah, but the ones from the press did. Some of the critics of the idea suggested an unrealistic response to very real problems. In fact, some of its harsher critics have said it's, it's rather hokey. The Detroit News dismissed No Crime Day as nothing but glitz and hype, with no realistic strategy for making the streets safer. Let let me say this. I'm kind of disappointed. But before we've even started, uh, you're kind of shooting it down. Isaiah acknowledged that No Crime Day wouldn't fix everything that ailed Detroit, that long-term problems required long-range solutions. But No Crime Day was not a 10-year plan. It was a vision of a 24-hour utopia. And to some people, that vision felt extremely shallow. Oh, No Crime Day, how naive is that? But there were a lot of things that changed from somebody starting with a naive idea. You've lost already if you simply give up hope and throw up your hands and say until drugs are resolved that we're not going to do anything. By the last week of September, the debate and speculation were almost over. Isaiah and Magic were ready for No Crime Day. Were the people of Detroit? Isaiah promised me Detroit will respond. Don't let my friend down. I'm expecting a call the next day to say, Magic, it worked. September 27th, it's time for No Crime. We'll be back in a minute. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at At around 2 p.m. on September 27, 1986, a huge mass of Detroiters took to the streets downtown. The 
there was a lot of excitement because it was really the first time something like that had taken place. When Georgella Muirhead looked out at the crowd, she saw block clubs and civic groups. Parents and grandparents shouted for more police protection. Kids held signs with the names of children who hadn't lived to see No Crime Day. A high school marching band played Things Can Only Get Better. There were a lot of young people that were involved, a lot of students. It was an exciting day. When the marchers entered Hart Plaza by the riverfront, they heard Motown hits from the same Detroit Police Department band that had played at Alto Edwards' assembly. The MC of the No Crime Day rally was Mr. Detroit basketball, John Mason. People came because they cared. People came because they wanted to hear that they were going to be protected. And we were there to not only uh, talk it, but walk it with them. We got a couple of rappers to bring to you. So don't run up. You see, a limit is a limit. A line is a line. We're here to celebrate a day of no crime. Music, please. How did it feel? that day whoa magic literally <laughs> i know we had magic johnson there but that that was magic well i'm gonna keep it real short young people remember dream keep your goals high set them high and try to attain them because you can be the next mayor you can be the next Isaiah. it was exciting to see magic johnson back in his home state of michigan but the young people in Hart Plaza had come to hear a Detroit hero. The point guard for the Pistons, number 11, Isaiah Thomas. We, us, all of us, we will make it happen. We'll look out for one another. We won't let someone break in Mrs. Jones' house and stab her with an axe. Say to the drug dealers this, if you want to be dirty, then be dirty. But damn it, don't make our kids dirty too. Near the end of his speech, Isaiah waved over Magic Johnson. Both men raised their arms above their heads. I want everybody next to you to grab the next person's hand. When Magic and Isaiah held hands, all the people in Hart Plaza followed their lead. That was a moment in which Detroit had come together. It was a kind of a harmonious unity. Historian Herb Boyd says Isaiah's speech was what the city needed to hear in 1986. Here is this athlete stepping in to infuse the city with this sense of optimism and hope that something can be done. Let's take it to the neighborhood. And let them know we're here. Thank you. The 15,000 people who'd showed up at Hart Plaza filed out in great spirits. The official No Crime Day events had gone as well as anyone could have hoped. Okay, yay, yay. But that was great only for the honest people. That was just for the people that wasn't out there committing crimes anyway. Fred Bell grew up in Detroit, and he'd been a police officer for 11 years. He knew the real test would come far away from the march and the rally, out of earshot of all those inspirational speeches. The people that lived by the street, they didn't care about Isaiah Thomas. I mean, to be honest. They may have watched him play some basketball, but they were going to do what they had to do in order to get that fix. From his beat in Detroit's 10th precinct, Fred should have been well-positioned to see if No Crime Day lived up to its name. But two months earlier, he and his partner Everett Williams had tried to run after a couple of drug dealers. I twisted my ankle. My ankle had swollen up about the size of a football. 
Fred got put on sick leave. It was strange to be off the job and not spend all day with his partner Everett. I mean, for eight hours you're tied to each other. You watching his back and he's watching your back. So it was it was a partnership, it was a friendship. Although Fred was off duty, Everett checked in the morning of No Crime Day to see how his friend was doing. We had chit-chatted and, you know, yeah-ha-ha, laughed, you know. He kind of, he wanted to be a comedian. Everett was patrolling their regular beat on Detroit's west side. As Fred had suspected, police officers were still hearing reports about the usual stuff. Cocaine possession, car theft, breaking and entering. Then, in the early afternoon, Fred's phone rang. It was about Everett. Officer from the 10th precinct in car had called me and asked me if I knew how to get in touch with his girlfriend. And I said, what's wrong? And she told me that, she told me that my partner had been killed. I told her, I said, you lying? No. She said, no, I wouldn't joke with you about nothing like that. Everett Williams had gone to check out a burglary scene in a second-floor apartment. When he headed back downstairs, the man who lived on the ground level fired his handgun. He claimed that Everett seemed like an intruder, even though he was in uniform. That single bullet struck Everett in the chest. He was rushed to the hospital. And so, even though I wasn't supposed to, I jumped in my car and I drove down there. By the time I got there, they had done whatever they could do. And they took me in there. So you got the chance to see him one last time? Yeah, I did. It looked like he was just laying up there asleep. Oh, man. Everett Williams died just after 1 p.m. on September 27th, about an hour before the No Crime Day march. There were still 11 hours to go. The day itself was just a regular day, but the night was different. Nine-year-old Alto Edwards felt relatively safe at home on the northwest side of Detroit. Alto was raised by her grandmother, but she saw her mother regularly. Her mom lived about 15 minutes away. Where my mother stayed at was probably a little bit more sketchy than where we lived at, um, and it still is. Yeah. Well, I guess you have to pay attention to your surroundings. Alto's older sister, Cleo, lived at their mom's house with their other siblings. You could just be walking past the people, and they just decide they want to pick on you. You know what I'm saying? So you have to choose your battle that day. Cleo was 13 in 1986. Her protector and best friend was her 15-year-old brother, the oldest of the Edwards kids. His name was Jaquari, and somebody shortened it to Reese. He had a jerry curl, which was something my mother really didn't want to have. (laughs) Real stylish guy, very likable, charismatic, uh, smart for no reason. (laughs) Like, he, he just went to school and made A's effortlessly. In 1986, Cleo started to notice some changes in her older brother. He, he did some things. He would skip school. I started smoking weed, things like that. Um, but we had just had a conversation about him straightening things out because he had dropped out of school, too, the end of his 10th grade year. Were you worried about him? I was not worried about him. Like I said, we had a conversation. I, I knew things that my mother didn't know, you know what I'm saying, about some of the things that he was doing that was probably to the left. Based on what she was seeing, Cleo suspected that Reese had gotten involved in selling drugs. Just certain things that came into the house, the gold necklace. I'm like, what you doing? The conversation with our mother was that he worked at a corn store. And I'm looking, I'm looking at his clothes like, that corn store ain't paying you that. You know, this is how we talk to each other. (laughs) What did you do? You can't do that. You got to go back to school. But it ended up being too late. On the night of September 27th, Cleo was at home. Her brother, Reese, had gone out. 
I heard his friends running to my house. I heard them probably a block away. And that they knocked on my door to say that he was in a house laying face down. Cleo's sister Alto was asleep in her bed across town. And I remember my grandmother coming to wake me up and telling me that we had to go because Reese had been shot. They drove frantically to be with Cleo and the rest of the family. There's tears and there's screaming and there's just chaos. And little me trying to just really figure out how to process it all. Their mother had rushed to the hospital to see Reese. I don't know what time she got back. She, she definitely came in and she just hugged us all at once and just started screaming. That's how you found out that he was dead? Yes. Reese Edwards was shot in the head, neck, and chest. It wasn't clear who did it. He died around 11 p.m., an hour before the end of No Crime Day. Reese Edwards and Everett Williams were two of three people shot and killed on September 27th. Another was stabbed to death. Four killings in 24 hours wasn't unprecedented for Detroit. But it was a brutal day, even by the standards of the so-called murder capital of the United States. It's almost as if those people just said to hell with this day, you know, we don't care if it's no crime day. We're going to do what we want. You couldn't have one day, you know, one day of peace. You didn't even want that. You wanted to raise hell on the one day that there shouldn't have been any. Let's take a quick break. Do you remember hearing about um, Officer Williams getting killed? Yes, I do. That was tragic all the way around. The city of Detroit lost a great officer, a great citizen, and I lost a great friend. The man who killed Fred Bell's partner, Everett Williams, maintained the shooting was an accident. He was charged with manslaughter and acquitted by a jury. Fred is still angry about that verdict, and he still misses the man he worked alongside for eight hours a day. People don't realize you don't spend that much time with your wife, your kids, nobody. It gets gets deep down, man. The New York Times published a story about the march and rally and Isaiah Thomas's visits to local schools. But that article focused on the death of Everett Williams. The headline was, Detroit Killing Mars, No Crime Day. It was never our effort to try to gloss over what was happening in Detroit. Georgella Muirhead had been hoping Detroit might get some good PR for a change. But she says Everett Williams' story needed to be told. If it had not been No Crime Day, no one would have heard about his murder or anything else that happened in the city of Detroit that day because it became so expected, so ordinary. This shouldn't be ordinary in any city, any American city. And it certainly shouldn't be ordinary in Detroit where we live. Everett's killing did get more coverage because it happened on No Crime Day but police officers are never seen as typical victims. The three other people who got killed on September 27th, they were treated like they were ordinary, at least by everyone who didn't know them. The police just wrote it off as, you know, another kid did. Just a casualty of living in the city, I guess. An unsolved murder. Cleo Edwards doesn't believe there was ever a real investigation into her brother Reese's killing. When I sent a records request to the city of Detroit, they said they'd get back to me by mid-April, but that's now been pushed back until at least October. To the best of my knowledge, no one was ever arrested or charged in connection to Reese's death. This guy was everything to me. My best friend, my brother. But during that first year, I wasn't able to grieve at all. 13, almost, I didn't turn 14 till November. 
the thing that I kept hearing was be strong for your mother. What was it like in your house after he died? Quiet. Cleo's younger sister, Alto, lived in that quiet, too. And it's never really gone away. To lose not just your older brother, but one of the only men in the family before he even became a man in such a tragic way, you carry it. Alto Edwards is 45 now. Her brother, Reese would have turned 52 this year. I think he would have figured it out. We were able to get that chance to make mistakes, to hang out with the wrong people, but we lived to tell the tale. And I really think that if he had been given that opportunity, I think, I think he would have done something good. When I spoke with Isaiah Thomas, I told him Reese's story. He it seems like the kind of person that you were trying to reach, smart, everybody loved him, had sort of started to go on the wrong path a little bit. And then in one instant, somebody makes a decision and he has no opportunity to live the rest of his life. That, that is still a daily story in our community that we do have the power to stop. We as a community, we do have the collective power to come together and stop killing each other. We can make that decision. One way to think about No Crime Day is that it failed. Isaiah Thomas had gone all over Detroit and asked everyone he met to lay off for one day as a show of good faith. That didn't happen. And so, No Crime Day felt like a broken promise. There's always going to be critics. And by the way, the critics, they're not always wrong. Now, when you say fail or failure to some people, they would laugh at that. Because I know from growing up in that environment, one night of sleep where you don't have to worry about someone hurting you or taking something from you or killing you. If that only happened in one household, it was a huge success. Judging it on those terms, No Crime Day probably was a success. And that's how Isaiah Thomas and Georgella Muirhead say it should be judged, that the name was aspirational, not a guarantee. That's what we asked for. But at the end of the day, none of us thought that there would be, you know, no crime. To me, if some miracle happened and there was no crime, I would be both surprised and grateful. But the reality was that was not likely to happen. Calling it No Crime Day and having Isaiah front it, it got a huge amount of coverage. So it seems like as a somebody who works in public information, it's got like all of the kind of ingredients that you would want. On the other hand, just in the name, it's baked in that people are going to think that it's a failure if there's crime. Right. And so you're setting yourself up <laughs> to fail, I feel like. So I understand what you're saying. The whole idea is a setup almost. But sort of no crime day. We'd like to have less crime day. The statement has to be simple enough so people understand it. And so it was over the top. It really was. The thought was, go for broke. There was another critique of No Crime Day, one less focused on the name than the approach. All the speeches and PSAs focused more on personal responsibility than social policy. They were putting the burden on individuals to shape up, not demanding solutions to structural problems. But in 1986, you know, the solutions were just so far removed. One man decided that he would try to make a difference. And he came up with a plan. And there were thousands of people that thought his idea was good enough to support. Is that worth not doing because we get a bad headline in the New York Times? I don't think so. And I don't think the people in Detroit felt that way either. So I'm glad that we had no crime day. 
From where Isaiah Thomas stood, No Crime Day wasn't naive. It was realistic. He knew from experience how cruel the world could be. And he understood that the only people who cared enough to save Detroit were Detroiters themselves. I I guess the naive part of me thinks that there will be a collective we that will come together and stop hurting each other. Even before the first No Crime Day, Isaiah was already dreaming about the next phase. Uh, Maybe the NBA can adopt a program and you can take a guy like Larry Bird in Boston and let him do it. You can take Magic Johnson in Los Angeles and let him do it. Uh, You can take Dominique Wilkins in Atlanta and let him do it. No Crime Day didn't make its way to Boston or Los Angeles or Atlanta. And in Detroit, it barely survived into 1987. In its second year, there was no march or rally downtown, just a televised forum with Isaiah and four high school students. By 1988, the whole project was over. Nothing changed, nothing changed. It was the same people still doing the same thing, you know. After 1986, it was hard to find the audacious optimism that had made a crime-free day seem possible. Congress imposed mandatory minimum sentences for crack possession. Detroit instituted a curfew for teenagers and began jailing parents if their children broke the law. And in 1987, a sci-fi thriller imagined a not-too-distant future in which the city devolved into a police state. At Security Concepts, we're projecting the end of crime in old Detroit within 40 days. There's a new guy in town. His name's RoboCop. One bright spot for the city was the Detroit Pistons. In 1989, Isaiah Thomas led the team to the first of two straight NBA titles. You know how they always tell you, strive to be the best you can be? This is what it means. It means that I got the best out of myself as a small guy in this league, and that's all I can ask for. A month before he won that second championship, Isaiah told a reporter that fame had made him a more private person. That story said he'd stopped playing basketball with kids at playgrounds, and that he'd been ridiculed for No Crime Day, which inspired parody t-shirts with guns and dead bodies. It also claimed that some critics believed he only did community work to boost his image. Isaiah is not a perfect person. In 2007, a jury ruled that he'd sexually harassed a colleague when he was coaching the New York Knicks, though he's always maintained he did nothing wrong. In the case of No Crime Day, I have no doubts about his sincerity. That in 1986, when he could have just focused on playing basketball and selling products, he took it upon himself to try to help his community. Those are the things that I was taught, ingrained in still speak from today. The impact that you have on an individual's life just by showing up is more important and powerful than any basket you can ever score. No Crime Day may not have lasted in Detroit, but it's still an alluring fantasy. Just this year, in August, a Baptist church in Isaiah's hometown of Chicago staged its own version complete with No Crime Day posters and t-shirts. We want to have a safe environment for our kids. And if we can start with one day that everybody just kind of calms down and just enjoys the day, then maybe we can build on that. So this No Crime Day is real important because our kids are important to us. I think a challenge to America is a No Crime Day. Let it be known. Let's ask America for one day of no crime. What would a day without crime actually look and feel like? I don't know, but we in America should try it. (laughs) We might like it. (laughs) Next time on One Year, 1986 a competition among the nation's teachers to win the ultimate field trip, a seat aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger. Everything I had done in my life so far had prepared me for this, and I was ready. 
and it was a dream for all of us. Well, I think when you want something badly enough, you're willing to take whatever risk there is. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love for you to sign up for Slate Plus. The support of Slate Plus members is crucial to our work. Members also get to listen to one year without any ads. And they get a special behind-the-scenes episode at the end of the season with me and senior producer Evan Chan. If you sign up now, you can get the first three months of your membership for just $15. To get that deal, go to slate.com slash one year plus to join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash one year plus. One Year is written by me, Josh Levine. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Sam Kim, Sophie Summergrad, Madeline Ducharme, Evan Chung, and me. It was edited by Evan Chung and Derek John, Slate senior supervising producer of Narrative Podcasts. Our technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Some of the audio you heard in this episode comes from the Detroit Historical Society. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1986 at oneyearatslate.com. And you can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Beverly Jackson, Sharice Edwards, Brittany Carlson-Love, Sean Townsend, Kelsey Hartung, William Spurrier, Brendan Roney, Hilary Fry, Joel Anderson, Susan Matthews, Sol Worthen, Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1986.